I'm so glad you guys are here tonight. I want you, if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, I want you to find the book of Exodus, if you would. Find the third chapter. Genesis, Exodus should be really easy for you to find. And here I am still looking for it. <laughs> it's a new Bible. I can't find anything. Okay, I know we've already prayed once, but I want to do it one more time. Heavenly Father, in the most excellent name of Jesus, we declare tonight that you are worthy of glory, worthy of honor, worthy of praise, worthy of every breath and every facet of our being. And tonight, we lay our hearts and lives before you, and we say, have your way, King Jesus. Holy Spirit, we need you. And that's not a casual invitation, that's a desperate cry. Would you come and breathe on us tonight? Would you transform us tonight, Lord Jesus, so that we look like you, act like you, think like you, speak like you, and live like you? We might bring honor and glory to your name. So let your kingdom come in this house tonight, and let your will be done. Open our ears to hear your word, and help us, Holy Spirit, to be more than hearers, but to become doers of your word. For it is in the excellent name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Over the next four weeks, we are going to go on a journey. The wilderness experience of the people of Israel is probably one of the most dominant themes in all the Old Testament. You find this wilderness, this 40 years that they spend in the wilderness, you find it being repeated over and over and over again, even into the New Testament. You see references with regard to the wilderness experience, even in the book of Hebrews, the book of Corinthians, and even in the Gospels themselves. You guys know the story. The people of God... Have found, have found themselves in Egyptian bondage and slavery for 400 years. For 400 years, they have bowed their lives and hearts to Pharaoh. For 400 years, they've been forced to labor and to build the, the massive, expansive building projects of Pharaoh. For 400 years, he says and they do. For 400 years, they've been a people separated from the promised land that God has given to them. For 400 years, they've been separated from their faith. For 400 years, they've been separated from anything that even vaguely resembles a people of dignity. For 400 years, they've been slaves. And now, after 400 years, the book of Exodus opens, especially in the third chapter. Moses has had a crazy life. He was born a Hebrew. His mom saw that he was a special child, and she knew that Pharaoh wanted all the male children to be destroyed. So she put her child in an ark of bulrush and sent him down the river and told his sister Miriam, his older sister Miriam, go and follow the baby and see what happens. Well, this ark of bulrushes, which is about like a basket that won't leak, so this basket finally arrives at the daughter of Pharaoh's courtyard. And she picks this baby up, and she says, this is going to be my child. And so then she calls for Jochebed, Moses' mother, to come and to nurse him. And he grows up in Pharaoh's household. And at the age of 40, Moses looks out, and he sees his people, the Hebrews, being sorely afflicted. I can't get my words out. He sees the people 
that he is a part of, the Hebrew people, he sees them being afflicted by Pharaoh and by the army and soldiers of Pharaoh. And so Moses, this deliverer inside of him, rises up and he tries to do in his own ability and in his own timing what God has called him to do. And so he rises up and he kills the, um, the Egyptian overlord and that sets another whole series of events into action. The next thing we know, Moses is having to run for his life and flee Egypt. And he finds himself in a land called Midian. And there he finds himself in the family of Jethro, married to Jethro's daughter Zipporah. Now another 40 years has gone by. He's 80 years old. Do you guys know anyone who's 80? Arlene's got her hand up. <laughs> He's 80 years old. You don't think about being 80 and starting a whole new life or a whole new career or anything like that. So Moses is 80 years old, and now he's the husband of Zipporah. He is the father of a couple of kids, and he is the shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. So Moses is on the backside of the desert. That means he's in the most remote area where most people wouldn't want to go. But that's where he's taking his flocks. And there, while he's in this back part of the desert, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he turns aside to see what's up with this. And when he turns aside to see what's up with this bush, this voice cries out to him, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, for the ground upon which you are standing is holy. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't had too many bushes talk to me. That would have to be a crazy experience for anyone. But Moses responds, takes off his shoes, goes toward the bush, and then the Lord begins to speak in Exodus chapter 3, and he says, I have seen my people. Do you know when God sees you, that means he's about to do something about it? God sees you. Whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in, even if you got there by your own poor choices and decisions, there is never a place where you can go that God doesn't see you. I have seen my people. I have seen their affliction. I have heard their cries. Now, Moses, I want you to go. Now, Moses is not a willing participant. Now, me, when God called me into ministry... I couldn't get there fast enough. I just couldn't imagine anyone not wanting to go full-hearted into ministry. But I've met people along the way, and they tell me that they struggled with the call of God in their life, that there was a part of them that wanted to go, but there was a part of them that wanted to resist because of the requirements and the responsibilities that would be a part of that. So Moses starts this argument with God. Now, I can totally see me doing that because I'll argue with a tree. And just, be, just because I left, you too, just because we left to argue, right? So Moses begins this argument. And the first thing that Moses says to God is, well, how will they know that you sent me? And then that's when he puts his hand in his cloak and it comes out leprous, puts it back in again. It comes out clean and throws the, uh, the staff on the ground. It becomes a snake. He picks it up and it becomes a staff again. Well, you would think that that would have been enough to convince him. I mean, most of us at that point would have said, just tell me where, and that's, that's where I'll be. But not Moses. Moses continues the argument. He finally asks God a very important question, which brings us to what we are going to discuss tonight. He asks God, what is your name? Now, before we get into that, we're going to be talking about the wilderness wanderings and the names of God that was revealed during that wilderness wandering. Now, this is significant because... A name in the Old Testament has a little bit more 
of a bite than our understanding of names today. The context of the wilderness wandering is simply this. These people that God is about to bring out of Egypt, they really didn't know him. How long have they been slaves? 400 years. For 400 years, they've been influenced and infected with a paganistic worship and the ritualistic lifestyle of the Egyptians. So they really don't know God. They know about him maybe from the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't have this personal commitment, this personal connection to God going on. They've also been slaves for 400 years. For 400 years, someone else has been telling them what to wear, when to wear it, what to eat, when to eat it, where to go to work, and what to do when they get there. Now, while in our, in our mentality, the idea of being a slave is just completely horrendous, after 400 years, they've gotten used to it. Can you just imagine? Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Do you remember the second installment of the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, when Eowyn is wrestling or fighting um, with Strider, and he clashes swords with her. And he says, my lady has some skill with a sword. And she doesn't answer him. And he says, my lady has no fear. And she responds back to him. And she says to him, I do have fear. And this is it. I fear a cage. An old age that would allow me to go so comfortable with that cage that I no longer have a desire for freedom. That struck in my heart, because I think sometimes we as Christians, we become so accustomed and we get so used to the cage, the cage of our sin, the cage of what people have said about us, the cage of what people say that we can or can't do, that we get so used to it, so accustomed to it, that we have no desire for freedom any longer. I think this is where the people of Israel are. For 400 years, they've been slaves. This is all they know. Now they're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. And in this wilderness, it's going to be brutal. And this is not going to be a pleasant context. For the next 40 years, they're going to completely have to trust God. Trusting God is not going to be optional. Their very lives are going to be dependent on it. They're going to have to receive water from a rock and manna from heaven. They're going to have to trust that there's going to be a cloud to cover them by day and a pillar of fire to protect them by night. They're going to have to trust in this God that they barely even know. But this journey, this 40-year journey, is going to set them free, not just from the external Egypt, but from the internal Egypt. Do you guys know what I mean by an internal Egypt? We all have the biggest bondage, things that we can see, things that we can touch, and things that we can identify. But the biggest Egypt, the biggest bondage of all is the bondage that we carry in our own hearts and minds. Now, back to the importance of a name. We've established the context. A name, when someone gives you their name in the ancient Hebrew context, when someone gives you their name, it implies a desire for relationship. In ancient Near Eastern culture, you didn't just give your name to anyone because they believed that your name gave them power with you, that by knowing your name, they would have access not only to your presence, but access to all that you have. Remember in the New Testament when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name. So names carried and the knowledge of a name carried great weight and great importance. It's not like today where we just throw names flippantly around. If you knew someone's name, you had power and you had relationship with that person. 
It gives the person who knows that name power concerning you. And also, in the Old Testament, names reveal character or traits about that person. Let me give you some examples. Jacob's name means trickster or supplanter. And that very much describes the character qualities of the man Jacob. Isaac's name means laughter because Isaac was filled with joy and laughter. Abraham's name means father of a great nation. Moses' name means one drawn out from the water. David's name means one loved by God. So when you go through the Old Testament and you see a person's name, don't be afraid to spend a little extra time to find out what that name means because it has significance. Because a person's name revealed the nature or the character of that person. So in this wilderness wandering, God's going to need to reveal himself to his people. Because remember, 400 years a slave, they know about him, but they really don't know him. And so the importance of tonight's message is for us to look at the names that God gave to his people during that wilderness wandering experience because I think that God wants to reveal those aspects of himself to us today. Back to Exodus chapter 3. Before the Exodus and subsequent wilderness journey commenced, God gave his covenant name to Moses. Moses knew the ancient Near Eastern culture, that if you had a person's name, then you had power and you had authority with that person. After he did the thing with the hand and the leprosy, the staff and the serpent, he wasn't convinced yet that he should do what God's asked him to do. And so then he asked God, what is your name? Because you see, God, L, that's not a name, that's a title. And he wants God's personal name. What is your name? And God responds to him. I think Moses was shocked when God gave him his name. God responds and says, yod heth vav heth. We translate that as Yahweh. But it's four letters in Hebrew. And it's the ground or the source of all that exists. God says, this is my name. My name is I am, I was, I will be. I am the source of all that was, of all that is, and all that ever will be. You could also condense that. God's saying to Moses, I am whatever you need me to be. If you need deliverance, I'm your deliverance. You need healing, I'm your healing. If you need salvation, I'm your salvation. If you need joy, I'm your joy. I am the source of all that you will ever have need of. And that's how God identifies himself. I am your source. I am, I was, I will be. Covenant starts and sustains everything in the life of the Jesus follower. The man or the woman, the young man, the young woman that says yes to Jesus and begins to follow him. Covenant is what initiates that. Salvation is our covenant with Jesus because we believe that his blood cleanses us and brings us into the family of God. We believe that he died the perfect sacrifice and we enter into covenant with him through salvation and we no longer belong to ourselves, we belong to him. And so that covenant initiates everything in our relationship with the Lord. So covenant starts and sustains everything. The people of God are not going to get very far if they do not enter into covenant with him. 
if they do not enter into a relationship with him. Covenant by its very nature is an invitation to relationship. You don't enter into that kind of an agreement with someone if you don't want a long-term relationship with them. There are three types of covenant well known to the ancient world, and I believe that we can see parallels to them even in modern culture. The first covenant that I have up here is the suzerainty covenant. The suzerainty covenant, that's a really technical name, but the suzerainty covenant is the kind of covenant or agreement when the person who has all the power makes a commitment to and establishes a relationship with someone who has no power. But in the suzerainty covenant, it's established for the benefit of the one who has everything. Now, let me give you a modern-day parallel. When you guys get a little bit older, you will probably go to the bank to borrow money to buy your first house because most people just don't have enough money laying around to go and pay cash for their first home. So you'll have to go to the bank, go through the whole process, and the bank will give you a loan. They're like the one who has all power because they've got all the money and you don't have any. And you need what they have. So they establish an agreement with you. They give you the money. But trust me, it is for their benefit, not yours. They give you the money and they attach this little thing called an interest rate to it. And so you may borrow $150,000 to buy your first home. But you will end up paying back something like $350,000 by the time it's all said and done, because of the interest rate. That's a suzerainty covenant. The one who has everything establishes an agreement with the one who has nothing, but ultimately it will still benefit the one who has everything. The second type of covenant is called parity. A parity covenant is a covenant between two equals. In the Bible, we see this kind of covenant established between Jonathan and David. They are two human beings who are good friends. And they enter into covenant with each other, a brotherhood bond, so to speak. Now, another parity covenant that we can parallel in contemporary culture is the parity covenant of marriage. Two people come together and enter into marriage as equals. Different, definitely, but equal. And that would be a parity covenant. The third covenant that we have up here is unique to Israel. No one else can claim this type of a covenant as called a patron covenant. A patron covenant is when the one who has everything establishes the covenant with the one who has nothing, and they establish that covenant to benefit the one who has nothing. This is the kind of covenant that God entered into with ancient Israel and the kind of covenant he enters into with us today through Jesus Christ. God has everything He is self-sufficient and needs nothing, but he wants us. And because he wants us and loves us while we were yet sinners, he gave his own son for us. And he enters into covenant with someone like me who has absolutely nothing to bring to the table except my garbage. And he enters into covenant with me. And calls me his child. And he does the same thing for you. This is a patron covenant. And this is the kind of thing our God does for us. Because this is his nature. And this is his character. He who has everything and needs nothing. Loves us and chooses us. In spite of us. I don't care if you have never felt loved in your entire life. You need to know tonight that the God of the universe loves you. Not because you're good. Not because you're talented, not because you're smart, not because you're perfect. He loves you because you belong to him. He 
loves you. So that while we were yet sinners, he would give himself for us that we could become his sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. Why in the world with this all-sufficient, self-sufficient God who needs nothing, why in the world would he enter into covenant with humanity? It makes no sense. Well, first off, God's relational. I mean, if, if I can put it into human words, he's an extrovert. I mean, seriously. And he's, God's not an introvert. God loves us and wants to talk to us. In the beginning, God's creating and he's doing and he's speaking. God is a communicating, relating God. You do not have to beg God to have a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm such a mess. God doesn't want to talk to me. You're exactly the one he wants to talk to. You're thinking, I've gone so far and I've been so bad that God would have nothing to say to me. You're exactly the one God has something to say to. And it's not to beat you up. He doesn't have some kind of cosmic bat in his hand waiting to take a swing at you because you've done everything but what's right. He has his arms held out open to you, desiring for you to come to him and let him be for you what you need more than anything else. Our God is a relational God. Maybe your mother didn't hug you and give you the nurture that you desired. Maybe your father failed to tell you that he loved you, but you have a heavenly father that wants to hold you close to himself and tell you that you are his own and sing songs over you. Covenant, it's relational, and our God is relational. God is real. You can't have covenant with someone who's not real. You can't enter into a covenant with an imaginary friend. God's real, and because he's real, we can have relationship and we can have covenant relationship with him. God is sovereign. In his sovereignty, God chooses me, chooses you for reasons that I can't even begin to understand. And a part of the beauty and a part of the splendor and the majesty is that I can try all of my life and spend my entire life in pursuit of understanding, and I can stand before you today and tell you I will never figure it out. Because God is a mystery. And in that mystery, in his sovereignty, he is to be worshipped. He is the one to whom all glory and all honor and all praise is due. He's relational, he's real, and he's sovereign. So the first name that we learn is the name Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He's relational. He wants to have a dynamic, ongoing relationship with you and with me. Now, in Exodus chapter 15, the children of Israel have walked a little ways through the desert. They've seen the waters part. They've seen Pharaoh's army drown. They know that they are on the other side on dry ground. So in chapter 15 of Exodus, they run into a wee bit of a problem. They are in a place where there's no water. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 15. And let's look at verses 22 through 26. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, they were named Marah. Remember, we talked about the importance of the names. Marah means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. 
There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. That name is Yahweh Rapha. And the first... At first, Yahweh establishes himself as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Now, he heals the bitter waters. Why is it so important for the people to know and to embrace this God as their healer? 400 years being a slave will leave one with a bitter and broken spirit. Can I just say it like this? 15 years of living life without Jesus will leave you broken and bitter of spirit. Living 20 years without Jesus will leave one broken and bitter of spirit. Living one day without Jesus will leave us bitter and broken in heart and in spirit. If there's one thing that we could put our fingers on that the Lord needs to heal in our culture and in our generation, it is the bitterness that comes from a broken heart and a broken spirit. I talk to people all over the country, and if I'll listen long enough, they'll tell their story, and their story is of some of the deepest, most painful wounds and experiences you could ever imagine. And they need more than we can ever begin to imagine. They need to know that there is a God who heals the broken and the bitter of heart and spirit. Not only do most individuals suffer from this bitterness and broken heart and spirit, when a person is bitter and they don't allow Jesus to deal with and heal that bitterness, they will infect and affect everything around them. All it takes is one bitter person to turn an entire community around. Bitterness is a dangerous thing, even so much that in the New Testament, Paul writes, guard yourself, look for any bitter thing that might pop up and let Jesus deal with it quickly. So what is it that God heals? We know he heals bitterness. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 17, he heals barrenness. Now, this is a physical barrenness that they're dealing with in Genesis chapter 20. The women cannot conceive and bear children. This is extremely important when you're a brand new fledgling people and you're trying to become a nation. But these, these, there's barrenness everywhere. And this barrenness needs to be healed. But I tell you, in our context, there's a barrenness of spirit in the church where there is a lack of spiritual fruit being produced among the people of God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, kindness, temperance, and faith. The fruit of God's Holy Spirit. And there's a barrenness that's going on. There's a barrenness of kindness and love that goes on in the body of Christ at large. And we need for God to come and heal the barrenness of our lives. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 3, he heals all of our diseases. Whatever disease you have, whether it's a disease of the mind, a disease of the soul, a disease of the body, our God can and will and does heal all of our diseases. He even says, I will send forth my word and I will heal my people. Healing should not be the exception in the body of Christ. Healing ought to be the standard. If someone is sick of heart or body, the body of Christ ought to be their first choice. 
There ought to be a crying out, Lord God, come and heal my broken spirit. Come and heal my afflicted body. There may even be some of you in this house tonight and you are sick of body or you are sick in your soul. I want you to know the Spirit of God is here. And he doesn't need for me to lay hands on you or someone else. The Holy Spirit is here and you can receive your healing right now, right where you sit. He heals our barrenness. He heals all of our diseases. Psalm 147 verse 3 says he heals our broken heart. I know that in this house tonight there are broken hearts. There are parents in here, your hearts are broken over the choices and decisions that your children have made. Young people, I know that many of you have broken hearts because your moms or your dads have not lived up to the expectations that you had of them. Your hearts are broken because of decisions that other people have made. Your hearts are broken because your life's not going in the direction that you wanted it to. Your heart is broken because of what someone else said or someone else did. I can't help you with that, but I can tell you this. I know the mender of broken hearts. He may not change your circumstance and situation, but he will change you. And he will be for you that which you need. Psalm 41 verse 4 says that he heals our sinful ways. He heals our sinfulness. There are some people, actually all of us, we have this bent towards sin and destruction. There's areas in all of our lives some people are bent in one direction. Other people are bent in another direction. It does not matter. Jesus is the one who heals us. The word sin means to be crooked or to miss the mark. Jesus heals us to where the crooked places are made straight and we are now able to hit the mark that we were destined to hit. He heals our sinfulness. We're not born that way. That's not a legitimate excuse. God can heal you of anything. He can take any crooked way in your life and make it straight. You are not the victim of anger. You are not the victim of addiction. You are not the victim of propensities and tendencies. You are an overcomer in Jesus Christ. And He is your healer. He is Jehovah Rapha. And it's time for us to quit saying, I'm just like that. That's just the way I am. My dad was like that. My grandfather was like that. My dad was an alcoholic. My brother's an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. You stop it. You are healed in Christ Jesus. Because he is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God, your healer. He heals the sin-sick heart. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says that if we will call upon him, humble ourselves, seek his face, he will heal our land. I'm not giving up on this country yet. I don't care who sits in the White House. The most important thing is who sits on the throne of your heart. Because if Jesus sits on the throne of your heart and we pull ourselves together and we begin to seek his face, pray, humble ourselves, he can and will heal our land. But only he can do it. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, he heals our backsliding. This is for those individuals. You repent, and you go right back to the same thing. You repent, you go right back to the same thing. He can heal that. Because when God touches your life, when he breathes his spirit onto you, you won't backslide anymore. He heals our faithlessness. 
Jeremiah 3, 32. I love the Lord today. I don't like him tomorrow. I'm indifferent the day after that. I like Jesus as long as he gives me what I want and everything's wonderful. It's great with Jesus because the guy I like looked at me. It's wonderful with Jesus because that girl I've been wanting to go out with said yes. I like Jesus today because the money's in the bank. I tell you this, God will heal that kind of faithlessness. I love Jesus, period. I follow Jesus, period. Doesn't matter what comes, doesn't matter what goes. God is looking for those men and women of every age. He's looking for those who will be faithful and consistent and declare, I have decided to follow Jesus and I will not turn back. He heals our bitterness in Exodus chapter 15. These are the things that he heals. You guys got these things? I've got more than one or two. But I know the healer, and he's here. He's in the house tonight, and he wants to make a difference in our life. He revealed himself as the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God with Israel. Then he revealed himself as Israel's healer. God is the healer of his church. And it's time for us to stop living with the sicknesses, whether it's of the soul or the body, and let Jesus bring his healing to our lives. The next name, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. You guys get the picture. As long as Moses had his hands up, they were winning. But when his hands got tired and they began to fall, they began to lose. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. They're at a place called Rephidim. And Rephidim means resting place or a place of refreshing. But it's also a place where water is in great demand. This is the first enemy that Israel's going to have to face after the drowning of Pharaoh's army in the sea. They're up against a losing battle if you look at it from the natural perspective. This is a band of runaway slaves. These are not professional soldiers. They're not trained. They're bricklayers and carpenters. They're manual laborers. They're not soldiers. They're not warriors. But even in the face of these extreme odds, God's going to give them victory. And then he's going to declare, I am your banner. Anyone in this room facing a battle that there's no way that you can in and of yourself win? Are you looking at something and something staring you right in the face and you're thinking, that's Goliath? Or you're thinking like the children of Israel, I'm like a grasshopper in a land of giants and somebody's going to step on me any moment? 
We all face insurmountable odds. We all face circumstances and situations that are so overwhelming that if God doesn't do something, we're not going to make it. And that's where these people are. Their entire battle is dependent on Moses keeping his hands lifted before the Lord. And God does for them what they cannot do for themselves and then declares himself to be Yahweh Nisi, Lord God, your banner. Now, why of all things a banner? Because my understanding of banner are maybe the flags that winter guard or color guard might wave at a football game or banners that have the different names of God on them that someone might carry through a procession at a church service. Surely banner has to be more than that. Here's the reason for banners or, or the purpose of banners. In the ancient world, they didn't have uniforms. So when they all went out to battle against each other, they all pretty much dressed and looked the same way. And I'm assuming that in the heat of battle, they would not know who was on which side. And what they would do is that they would look for the banner of their army and they would rally to that banner. So that banner became a point of orientation during a battle, reminding them of who they are and where they belong. I think the church of Jesus Christ needs a banner to be raised because some of us have forgotten who we are. Some of us have forgotten where we belong because we have found ourselves associated with people, places, and things that are not honoring to Jesus. I would that the Lord lift up his banner once again in the midst of his people and draw us to the right place once again. Banners are coverings, are protection. When you're close to the banner, you're protected by the banner, by the one carrying the banner. And banners are also declarations of victory because it's the one left holding the banner who is declaring my team won. And God is declaring himself to be Israel's banner. Now here's the banner that covers, orients, and draws the people of God. God himself is our banner. He said, I am Yahweh Nisi. I am the Lord God, your banner. God doesn't just give us a piece of fabric with a couple of things scribbled on it. He is our banner. He is the one that draws us and orients us. He is the one that reclaims us if we're going in a wrong direction or we've connected ourselves to the wrong team. The banner of God is victory. There is never defeat in the kingdom of God. Even if it looks like defeat, it's nothing more than God setting you up for a victory that's bigger than what you could have ever had. God does not accept defeat when it comes to the things of his kingdom. He even says the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. I've read to the end of the book, he wins. And he wins big. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. His banner over me is love. His banner over me is not disappointment. His banner over me is not frustration. His banner over me is not anger. His banner over me is not defeat. His banner over me is love. And love conquers all things. 1 Peter 4.8 even goes so far as to say love covers love banners a multitude of sins oh church let this sink deep within your heart i don't know where all of you are tonight but i do know this regardless of where you are where you've been and what's going on in your life right now his banner over you is love he's not mad at you he has plans for your life he has redemption on his agenda for you 
and his banner over you, his banner over me, it's love and not any of those other things. Exodus chapter 31. There's a lot in this, isn't there? You guys are being really patient with me. Thank you. Exodus chapter 31, verse 13. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For there is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am Yahweh Makadosh. I am the Lord God who sanctifies you. I am the Lord your sanctifier. And that same idea is repeated in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8. Yahweh's made covenant with his people. He's declared himself to be their healer, their covering. Now he's moving them toward being separated to and for him. They're going to distinguish themselves from the other nations by doing two things. According to Leviticus 20, verse 8, this is how they're going to be separated or sanctified unto the Lord, by giving heed to and doing his commandments. It's not just enough to acknowledge the commandments of the Lord. You must become a doer of it. It's not just enough to read his word and say, I believe. You must become a doer of his word. It's not enough to say, I shouldn't steal. You must make up your mind. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to dishonor my mom or my dad anymore. I'm not going to covet that which does not belong to me. We must become doers of his word. Because it's in the doing that we prove that we have really listened and paid attention. God is a separating God. Look at his history. In the book of Genesis, he separates light from darkness, solid ground from the sea, the earth from the sky. He separates Abraham from all the other nations of the world. He separates um, Jacob from Esau. He separates Judah from the other tribes of Israel. God is a separating God. And let me, just in case any of you are unclear about this, when you really start following Jesus, don't be surprised if friends begin to walk away from you because God is a separating God. Don't be surprised if people that you used to hang out with don't want to hang out with you anymore. Don't be surprised if God moves them to all corners of the earth. I accepted Jesus when I, when I was barely 19 years old, and I had a group of friends. And that group of friends, one of them married a guy, and they went to Germany. Another one decided to take off and hitchhike to California. One by one, every friend that I had was removed from me, and it was just me and Jesus. I was not happy about it. It did not make me feel good. But I look back now in retrospect, and I thank God he did it. By removing those influences from my life, it made a way for him to speak to me and to get my attention, and to take me in a whole other direction with my life. He is a separating God. And he doesn't stop. He will keep separating you. He will keep separating you from that which is good and that which is godly, that which is acceptable and that which is over the top. He will begin to separate you from things that you can't even begin to imagine. But what he does, he separates you unto himself. And so the more he separates you from that, the more you find yourself drawn close to him. 
And I can tell you from personal experience, this is my testimony. I would rather have Jesus. I love people. I am a social extrovert from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. But take the whole world and give me Jesus because when it's all over, it's all about him. And there isn't anything nor anyone else worth my relationship with him. When you allow him to separate you unto himself, you will find that he'll bring lifetime friends into your life. People that will not just be friends in fair weather days, but people who will be friends for the rest of your life. People who will speak truth to you. People who will be there to pray for you, to encourage you, and to be your strength when you're weak. People to point you to Jesus at every step and juncture of your life. Do not resist his separating process. Because what he separates you to is far greater than anything he would ever separate you from. The next name that I have here for the Lord, Exodus 20, verse 5. Also, Exodus 34, verse 14. It's found in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 24, chapter 5, verse 9, and 6, verse 15. This is one of the most prolific names for God in all the Old Testament, and yet it is the one that is the least taught of any of his names. It's Yahweh Kana. The Lord is jealous. I would be remiss not to talk with you for just a moment about this name. Let's read chapter 20, verse 5. See what the word has to say. You shall not worship them or serve them, referring to other gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. I hope that one of the things that's becoming very clear to you tonight is that God is passionate for you. He wants a relationship with that relationship, not an ordinary, boring one. He wants a living, fiery, passionate relationship with you. I think we've stayed away from this idea of God as jealous because human jealousy is such a negative, rampant thing. I thought I would give a little point here or two on the difference between God's jealousy and human jealousy. Human jealousy is born out of sin and insecurity. I have even seen the word jealousy defined in some psychological manuals as insecurity blown out of proportion. Human jealousy is born out of fear or out of sin and insecurity. But divine jealousy is born out of love and holiness. Human jealousy seeks to destroy and possess its object. But divine jealousy seeks to protect and liberate its object. God is jealous over you. Not to possess, not to control, not to destroy, not out of sin, not out of insecurity. God is jealous over you out of love, out of protection, out of a desire to see you become everything that he's destined you to be. This might be likened unto the passion that a parent has for their child to see them reach their full potential in life. The jealousy that a parent has to see their child grow up pure and innocent, walking through life without the baggage that sin attaches to them. The jealousy that a mom or dad would have for their child to know and to experience all the good and precious things of life. That's the kind of jealousy God has over you. He's jealous over you and protects you and will move heaven and earth and has moved heaven and earth to get to you. 
the context for the jealousy of God as given in the passages that I listed for you. Idolatry is at the top of the list. Let me define idolatry for you. It's not the worship so much of little bitty hand-carved or molten images. It's when you look to anything or anyone other than God as your source. He's jealous because they began to enter into political agreements with foreign nations. They were beginning to trust their ability to negotiate and make pacts and treaties with the nations around them. They were trusting their political prowess and their military might over his power and over his sovereign control. Idolatry and God's jealousy stirred up when the people of God begin to give some other God or entity credit for that which only God can do for them. This is spelled out perfectly in the book of Hosea. God says, you've trusted Baal for the wood, for the wool, the wine, and the flax. But it's me that gives it to you. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to stop giving it to you, and I'm going to let you figure out just what Baal can provide for you. When you begin to look to something or someone else other than the Lord as your provision, you are kindling his jealousy. Thank God for a job. And if you've ever been without one and then you get one, you know what it means to be grateful for a job. Thank God for a job. But my job's not my security. My paycheck is not where my hope is. I need it, I want it, but my hope's not anchored there. My hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. My security is in Him and everything that I have, I have from His hand. And church, regardless of whether you're 13 or 85, makes no difference. God is still provider. And when we look to anything or anyone else for our provision and give anything or anyone else credit for our provision, we kindle his anger and his jealousy. His jealousy is kindled when we forget where we came from and who brought us to where we are now. I am not standing in this place tonight because of any human being. I'm not standing in this place tonight because of any intellectual or academic gifting. I'm not standing in this place tonight because of any favor. I am standing in this place tonight because of God and God alone. There, were, there was work and there were choices and there were decisions, but it is Christ and Christ alone who has brought me to this place. And you can say the same thing. You are in this place tonight doing what you do, being a part of what you're a part of because God has brought you to this place. So the names of God that were revealed to the people of God in the wilderness, he's the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. It all starts with covenant. And if you're in, place, in this house tonight and you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, tonight's your night to let him become the Lord and the Savior of your life, that you might become a covenant son or a covenant daughter of God. Then he reveals himself as healer, not just healing our physical bodies, but healing our broken hearts, healing our wounded spirits and our scarred souls. If you're in this house tonight and you know him as Lord and Savior and you need him as healer, he's here. He's our banner. He's our cover. He's the one that orients us to where we belong and whose we are. He protects us and grants us victory even when everything looks like defeat.
He's the sanctifying God. He sets us apart and separates us unto himself. And then he guards over us with jealousy. Not human jealousy, but divine jealousy. You may be in this house tonight, and you're like, who in the world is she talking about? Doesn't matter what name from the Old Testament you use to speak of God. There are dozens. But in the New Testament, there's only one name given, and it's the name of Jesus. Jesus is our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is our banner. Jesus is the one who sanctifies and sets us apart. And Jesus is the one who's jealous over us. We've been bought with a price and we're not our own. He's passionate for us. And the invitation tonight is simple. If you don't know him, it's time to receive him. If you need a healing, let him be your healer. If tonight you need to know that he gives you victory and covers and protects you, he's going to be your banner. If you need to be reminded tonight that he is a separating God who sanctifies you unto himself, he's here to minister that to you. And if you need to be reminded that he's a jealous God, he's here to remind you that he is passionate about you. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to invite you if you would like to come to the altar and you just want to pray by yourself, then kneel. If you'd like for me or some of the other pastors to pray with you, then just come stand up front. We would be honored to join with you and agree with you for whatever the Lord has for you tonight. Lord Jesus, what a great God you are. Minister to your people. Let your truth saturate their minds and their hearts tonight. Holy Spirit, we've asked you to come and fill this place. And we ask you to come and demonstrate your presence here. Fill the empty. Save the lost. Deliver the ones in bondage. Grant victory to those who feel defeated. Be healer tonight, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.